Harvard Divinity School. Like a Tree Universally Spread, Book Launch and Discussion, November 15th, 2023. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Charles Stang, and I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to this afternoon's event, a panel discussion of an important new book by one of the center's own research associates, Keith Edward Cantu, who is part of the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative. Keith's new book is entitled, Like a Tree Universally Spread, Sri Samapati Swami and Shiva Raja Yoga. I'll say more about his book in a moment, but first allow me to welcome our three respondents who will be commenting on different aspects of Keith's rich and wide-ranging book. So we are delighted and honored to welcome to the center Srilata Raman, Professor of Hinduism and Associate Chair in the Department of the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. Professor Raman is a distinguished scholar of South Asian religions with interests ranging from Sri Vaishnavism to modern Tamil religion and literature, among many others. Our second respondent is Aaron Michael Olray, lecturer in religious studies at the University of Houston, and along with Keith, a research affiliate here at the center working on the Transcendence and Transformation database. Aaron is a historian of religion specializing in South Asian rituals, specifically magical rituals. And our third and final respondent is Manon Hedenborg-White, Associate Professor of History of Religions at Malmo University, whose research focuses on modern alternative religions, including Western esotericism, new religious movements, and beliefs and practices linked to contemporary so-called New Age spirituality. So welcome to the center, and thank you all for your time and for bringing your expertise to bear on Keith's important new book. Now, allow me to offer a very brief summary of Keith's book so as to orient everyone. Keith's is the first book, academic or otherwise, entirely dedicated to the study of Sri Samapati Swami, a Tamil yogi and prolific author who lived between the 19th and 20th centuries. The Swami had a significant impact on the development of modern yoga in South Asia, as well as the development of the astral body in modern occultism. And yet his historical context and literature remains little understood. His works introduced elements of Shaiva cosmology and tantric yoga from Tamil Nadu to what is today North India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, especially the regions of the Punjab, Gujarat, Maharashtra, and Bengal. And he pioneered a universal yogic system that, on the surface, anticipates one later popularized by Swami Vivekananda, about whom, by contrast, there are enough books to publish. There, I'm sorry, there are enough books published to fill an entire library. Keith's book also is unique among many books on South Asian religions in that it recounts Sabapati Swami's connections with authors known to scholars and readers of global esotericism, including his personal meeting with the founders of the Theosophical Society, Helena Blavatsky and Henry Steele Olcott, as well as how his teachings on yoga were integrated into theosophy, new thought, and other religious movements such as Thelema via the writings of Aleister Crowley. 
As such, the book analyzes and critiques a certain tendency in prevailing post-Orientalist scholarship to largely erase or minimize South Asian agency in the development of esoteric spirituality during the colonial period. And the book instead posits that the development of yoga in modern occultisms, I'm sorry, in modern occultism was more of a co-creative process that brought together many different interlocutors and competing agendas. Keith's book was intended to fill a major gap in scholarship by providing a meticulous examination of the content, contents of Sabapati's teachings and publications, not only in their local Tamil setting, but across South Asia and abroad in Europe and North America. And it contributes much to an understanding of the long history of cultural entanglements in religious history. It's hoped that it will be useful to a wide range of scholars, yogis, and esoteric practitioners alike. So thank you all so much for joining us. Here's how the event will unfold. We have an hour and a half together, although I beg your pardon because I'm afraid I have to leave after the first hour. But each of our three respondents will speak in turn. And then we will offer Keith a chance to respond, which will hopefully lead to a free-flowing conversation among the four of you. So without further ado then, Srilatha, the floor is yours. There um, you are, welcome. <laughs> thank you so much, Charles. And thank you, Keith, uh, for inviting me to take part in your book launch, which I find, um, which I, is a great pleasure for me to do so. Um, as you know, as we both know, I've been following your work on Sabapati with huge interest, and I'm delighted with the final outcome of the work and the way the, the book has emerged uh, to address um, the very particular as well as uh, the much more global aspects of uh, this fascinating, enigmatic uh, figure. Um, I suppose in terms of being a respondent, uh, my own um, uh, approach to the book uh, obviously um, has almost a laser-like focus in some sense on uh, Sabapati's Tamil Shaiva, um, you know, uh, antecedents and how that contributes to our understanding of the modernization of Tamil religion in a particular period. Uh, we can even ask, does it contribute to that modernization? I think that's a question worth asking. Um, but also, I think, um, in terms of the tremendously close parallels between uh, your work on Sabapati and mine on uh, Chidambaram Ramalinga Swamigal, um, it's, it helps, uh, I think it helps us think about uh, this landscape of uh, the, the 19th century into the early 20th um, and these figures who emerge, uh, not just one or two, but in fact several in this period, and what this uh, tells us about um, what is happening uh, on the ground um, uh, with uh, Hindu religious traditions. Uh, so the first thing, of course, which your book does, um, which I think is tremendously important, um, of course, it 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 it, it is a it's a contribution at a theoretical uh, level to our understanding of the evolution uh, the, uh, of modern yoga. But perhaps I'm going to leave um, Aaron and Manon to address more of those aspects um, and how in, in, in effect, 
a, a kind of postulated um, uh, rupture, perhaps wittingly or unwittingly, created by scholars, um, very fine scholarship actually on modern yoga over the last decades needs, needs to be fundamentally revisited. Uh, but uh, what I want to, uh, uh, but moving away from that, uh, what I think I want to talk about um, is um, what research on these figures um, like Sabapati actually involves, because um, which I think it was less recognized. I look back uh, very strongly at um, all the research, for example, on Ram Mohan Roy, uh, again, very fine historical research, um, but which overwhelmingly tended to sort of uh, see his uh, unitarian sort of connections and see uh, his, you know, his contribution to quote unquote modern uh, Hindu thought and to Sati debates and so on, but uh, which did not take on board for a long time seriously his uh, training and his education, which was rooted in obvious expertise on, uh, you know, in pre-modern literatures and, and uh, uh, the genealogies of those literatures. Um, so in effect, um, what uh, your work does um, is that uh, take very seriously the idea of what one can call uh, the hybrid modernity uh, of these figures. They are, they are not just uh, rooted in the 19th century. They are, in fact, also rooted uh, in some uh, perhaps idiosyncratic way, but nevertheless rooted in the pre-modern literatures, in their own, in the evolution of their own ideologies. So we cannot, um, and this is something um, that I think is very vital to acknowledge about your work, and it's an excellent, I mean, outstanding contribution in that way. We cannot ignore, um, you know, the literatures which go back a couple of centuries before Sabapati to understand um, where he's coming from and how uh, he is, uh, you know, how his ideas are emerging. So, of course, one of the things uh, you immediately do, that the book does, is it plunges into examining exactly that in terms of his professed lineages um, and therefore uh, the, the ideological uh, sort of... Um, uh, the historical background to his own thoughts actually coming from the Tamil Shaiva milieu and particularly, of course, uh, Tamil Veera uh, Shaiva traditions, um, which uh, are emerging very strongly from about the 15th century. And then um, there's a huge efflorescence in the 17th century with Kumaradeva, uh, whom you then, uh, uh, you know, refer to uh, and the lineage. So, um, we have uh, in the book, uh, um, you know, the the sort of um, signaling uh, to us that uh, this is what uh, you know. This is the the uh, the milieu we need to understand in order to understand Sabapati's uh, early writings, particularly. Um, at the same time, I think what you do uh, in a very um, important scholarly way is that you don't 
you don't, um, uh, you know, you point us towards further questions, which is so important um, in research like this, because uh, there is so much that has yet not been uncovered, not been studied in the case of Tamil Shaivism, uh, which uh, needs to be, you know, really, really looked at. And uh, you also suggest that that has to be the case. So uh, when you take, you know, uh, the, the Kumaradeva lineage, um, you come eventually, of course, to that the most enigmatic and complex works of all, uh, the Tirumandiram, possibly 12th, possibly 13th century. And you suggest, well, obviously, a lot of uh, Sabhapati is also coming from that via uh, its transmission in the Tamil Virashaiva milieu. Um, I think uh, pointing towards very important future research in bridging the gap uh, between uh, Sabapati in the 19th century and uh, the 17th century works. So um, this is a really, really important contribution. Uh, the other very uh, fascinating uh, contribution, of course, uh, is with the other lineage. Oh, by the way, uh, let me just conclude and uh, to say that uh, uh, you know, uh, you you have uh, uh, you know th that lineage, but what uh, I think it it also behoves us to ask what uh, the claiming of lineages mean here. Um, you know, we seem to have the idea that uh, uh, he is. Uh, his teacher was Veda Shreni uh, Swamigal. Um, and then uh, we move on to Shivanyana Bodha Yogigal, uh, who is uh, this, this uh, very enigmatic figure sitting in some cave uh, in the Podigai Hills, whom apparently Sabapati studies with for nine years or something and then meditates on his own and so on, um, which provides, of course, the fascinating Siddha, a Siddha connection. Uh, to Sabapati's writings. Uh, one is struck uh, simply because of the huge parallels between this life and the life of uh, uh, Chidambaram Ramalinga Swamigal that uh, the need to claim a Siddha connection. Um, uh, how much is Shivanyana Bodha a, a real figure? You also ask that question. Uh, and we are left with, with the tantalizing possibility that Perhaps he's not even a real figure, but claiming a Siddha connection seems to be almost vital uh, for the establishment of one's uh, one's own um, uh, position in this case. Um, uh, what is uh, what is I think uh, fascinating, therefore, um, in in the nineteenth century, is the emergence of these charismatic figures uh, who are creating their own systems, but who still uh, require um, a certain kind of validation, either from uh, the idea of the Siddha, who's of course been in some way resuscitated in modernity as uh, this uh, almost free thinker, uh, religious spirit uh, for the Christian missionaries, very fascinating because of this very strong caste critique uh, and being picked up in modernity and being uh, sort of elevated again. And uh, so there's a claim to that. Um, but of course, ultimately, the claim is of a self-authority as well. Um, uh, you have a lineage, but uh, the lineage uh, uh, does not tether you to a position. Um, and so, of course, Sabhapati's uh, Shiva Raja Yoga brings in extraordinary elements of 
uh, you know, cosmological elements, um, you know, all kinds of uh, a rename, uh, adding tattvas, uh, putting the Sankhya, not just the Sankhya tattvas like the Shaiva Siddhanta does below, but other tattvas as well, the Shaiva Siddhanta tattvas themselves and so on, and creating an entirely uh, new uh, system. So there's a kind of eclecticism. Um, uh, what I said about Ramalinga Swamigal when I quoted E.P. Thompson, that uh, uh, his, his uh, reading was both more eccentric and more eclectic than one uh, could, um, uh, you know, fathom, I think applies uh, very, very much uh, to um, uh, to Sabapati as well. Uh, what then becomes, uh, and Charles, you have to just stop me when uh, when my time is up. How much, do I have five more minutes? Um, <laughs> or should I stop? Uh, what I would say maybe two to three, if that's possible. Sure. Okay, so um, you know, uh, I just want to sort of conclude by uh, by uh, you know um, uh, bringing in uh, uh, the perception when I compare Ramalinger and Sabapati that uh, Ramalinger, of course, has virtually no impact um, in 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 a global scale or none uh, in his time and even immediately after that. And to some extent, you know, even today, except in the Tamil diaspora, Sabapati gets picked up by Franz Hartmann. He gets picked up, uh, of course, through a transmission uh, by Alistair Crowley and so on. Uh, so in some sense, um, I'm thinking about the kind of theorization which both Manjapra does on the vernacular cosmopolitan, um, which uh, Srinivas Arvamudan does with Guru English, right? Uh, translation. Uh, you know, uh, uh, universalizes uh, and globalizes uh, these these figures or their writings in some way. But um, at the same time, uh, that seems to go hand in hand with a fascinating uh, amnesia, which you, you rightly refer to. In some way, they become lost in their own translation, uh, particularly their local uh, rootedness. Um, uh, becomes ruptured or lost. There's a local rootedness that remains uh, devoid of the global, and there is the global uh, uh, which remains devoid uh, uh, of the local. Uh, so this is again something I think that your uh, book brings out wonderfully, and I, I will stop there for now. Thank you, Srilata. Uh, Aaron, would you like to uh, turn on your video? I, I met Keith uh, in Santa Barbara when I was toward the tail end of my graduate work. And I remember driving to Los Angeles. Seems like we were always driving to Los Angeles. And I remember lots of things we did in Los Angeles, but I think often about driving back late at night and sort of a lot of the conversations we had. Now I'm a Sanskrit guy. I like my old, I like my weird, I like Sanskrit. And Keith, I kept trying to find my way in to make his work resonate with anything that I was specifically studying at the time. And uh, I really couldn't find a way to do it. But I found his chosen milieus of the modern and in many ways the postmodern have been incredibly fruitful, namely in this book that we have. Now, uh, Keith, uh, Keith 
began talking to me about his project and it wasn't completely clear, but I remember a conversation we had where I had asked them if there was ever an influence by, in the, well, hold on, let me put that a different way. I remember asking him that we can see a lot of influence by Indic sources onto contemporary esotericism. And I said, is there an instance of there being any other way? And he said, Sabapati Swami. And now we can see that what, what that is. Now, Keith has posited an idea called occult yoga, which I'm still resistant to, but I'm coming around. Um, Dimashelis famously uh, posited esoteric yoga to contrast modern postural yoga. And that esoteric yoga would be represented by people like Yogananda or Swami Vivekananda. What I find really interesting is that Keith is not studying yoga. He's studying a yogi. And that's something that will take ourselves in a different direction and will inherently lead to looking at local cultures. Now, I do wonder if this word occult yoga, what is the secret in it? Um, I do see, I think esoteric yoga really works better and does more, but I don't, I might not be so sure. What Keith shows is a cultic milieu, an O-culture that is deeply rooted in local and regional Shaivism, specifically uh, Tamil Shaivism and the Sri Vaishnavas, but also influenced by Western influences, particularly the Victorian naturism. It seems that Subhapati Swami was around and drinking in the same waters as Swami Vivekananda, who went west and sort of took Ramakrishna with him. I was, I was intrigued by the two together, as Ramakrishna was sort of famous for having practiced every religion over a period of weeks to come to his conclusion that his Vedanta was the best. I was intrigued that uh, Swami Sabapati Swami actually had a similar move um, practicing all religions to try them out. And I wondered about that move rhetorically throughout sort of the Godman culture of the time. Now, unfortunately, Sabapati Swami may have had a lot of contacts, maybe not a lot, but had some contacts with the Esophical Society, namely Olcott and Blavatsky that Keith writes about, but he never had any grand trips. Swami V had his three or four trips to Swami Vivekananda to the West, and they established Vedanta centers uh, dedicated to religion. And then back in India, the money from the West went into the missions that are spread throughout India to this day. I wonder perhaps if Subhapati Swami had been more hitched to Westerners or hitched to the anti-colonial project, if he might be better known right now. As usual, I like a book that complexifies problems by contextualizing things. His work really does that. Um, that extra layer of complexity to these local situations sheds light onto something that we would like to learn about, but also opens up whole new vistas that we didn't even know were there before. Keith writes that this is like the roots and the limbs and the leaves of a tree. Now, What's intriguing to me still is this God-man culture. I think about in the 19th and the 20th century, we have Krishnamacharya, uh, much later we have Ram, Swami Rama, and yogis journal, journal, blah, journeying throughout the Indic world of God-men and making all sorts of fascinating connections and often disappearing, often for nine years or 12 years or whatnot, such as Krishna uh, Krishnamacharya ending up supposedly being in Tibet, though who knows where it was. 
Um, it's intriguing to me that in while he was did some of that wandering, he was very much located in the Tamil area. But yet his sons, his Tamil was heavily influenced by Sanskrit. His work was put into or written into uh, Hindi and Bengali. His books were spread throughout India on the cheap books on the rail lines, which when I was there in 99, there was still a bit of. And I remember the vibrant print culture of India at that time. And amazingly, it made its way into German, which probably wasn't to be expected. The, and then there were a number of Westerners who wrote about him and took up his ideas, but never met him. The foremost being Aleister Crowley and, of course, Hartman. Um, but Crowley has Subhapati Swami in a footnote. And I know I'd noticed that name before I met Keith, and I just thought it had to be some other Westerner who had just taken on uh, an Indic name for the sense of authority. I didn't realize in that little footnote that there was so much more we were going to find, and that Keith, by tracing that same footnote, would come to this entire research project. Another interesting thing about Subhapati Swami is unlike the other neos of the neo-Hinduism or the neo-Vedanta, Subhapati Swami doesn't give up on the paranormal. There are still paranormal, miraculous experiences that happen. It's missing the sort of sobriety that you find in so many neos that are just often ways to be just oh so materialistic. Now, I've been thinking about this word co-creation because I was working on folk religion for a while. Now, with folk religion, you have a strange intersection of of information, religious content being handed down from on high, and then people receiving it, innovating, interpreting, and then spreading amongst other people, amongst other folks. Keith was generous enough to write for my edited volume, Living Folk Religions, and he said it was one of the first chapters published on Sabapati Swami. Now, in conversations about folk religions, recently I've been thinking about sites of co-creation, Subhapati Swami has plenty of Indic materials handed to him. He well, handed, traditioned to him. He interprets many Western ideas. He innovates in his own practices and writings, and he spreads his work via popular presses and his own lineage of students. I'm interested in that site of co-creation where he takes all of that and recreates it uh, into something new and exciting. I would like to have heard a little bit more about his specific engagement with Western thought and Western influences. Uh, and the Sanskrit Indologist in me really wants all that culture traced back to the roots in the medieval world. But you can't do it all. Uh, I remain terribly intrigued by this money pravala, this heavily Sanskrit-inflected Tamil. And I'm, I'm saddened to think that a notion of pure Tamil that is removed from the Sanskrit influences could be advanced and in that would be removing this particular Tamilian from there. And I think about these wildly hybrid cultures that spread across genres and language. And I think Keith is the first person I've seen that really engages in this generation of scholars that really goes in and bounces between these wide linguistic vistas. And it's not just being able to do that and having the training, but that's what these same authors were doing. They were bouncing across these wonderful linguistic vistas and Keith's project shows the vibrancy of this modern 19th and 20th century uh, Indic tradition of literature. Now, in conclusion, do I think Keith makes too much of Savabhati Swami? Yeah, I kind of do. But we all too make too much of things. 
If you look at something, as the occult ad, as the occult adage says, if you look at something close enough, you see everything. And I'm amazed at how Keith went from just a name to this entire project. I think he simultaneously, I will critique, I will critique. I think he simultaneously overstates his points. And then he does this thing where he uses these subjunctive phrases that waffle a little bit. I contend, perhaps, might. I remember chopping those words out of a chapter that he wrote for me. And I look forward to Keith removing some of that subjunctive tense from his writing as he becomes more confident being the foremost scholar of Savavati Swami in the world. Uh, it's funny to me that Keith sees all of this influence of Sabapati Swami on occult yoga, but Swami Sabapati is forgotten. Yet, one of those same very orders with Keith editing for them that has forgotten him will soon be publishing his work. Uh, and for once, Sabapati Swami will go far and wide with his name still attached, not removed from the techniques he has taught, not removed from his literature, not filtered into German and English, but still there. If it's translated in English, it's still him. My final point is, with all this talk of trees, and I'm teaching first-year Sanskrit right now, I find myself thinking about the beloved Sanskrit phrase of anyone who has studied Robert Goldman's grammar, the Devavani Paveshika. Ramo vanam gachati. Rama goes to the forest. Well, Keith, Keith vanam agachan tatrasa shastachudamanim labyate. Keith went to the forest and he found the crest jewel of fine scriptures. Thank you, Keith. Your book has been a pleasure to read. So, first of all, my thanks are very much due to, um, to Keith and to the organizers for giving me the opportunity to participate in this event and to act as one of the respondents for Keith's excellent new book. As a historian of religion specialized in the study of esotericism and particularly esotericism in a modern context from the 19th century and onwards until today, I'm going um, to, to focus on the contributions of, of Keith's book to this field uh, specifically, and then I'm going to zoom out a little bit and widen the scope to look at the more, uh, the larger ramifications of this work. As many of uh, you here today will know, the term Western esotericism uh, has its roots in the Greek adjective esotericos, referring to something that is hidden or, or inner in the sense of, of being reserved for an inner circle and contrasted with the esoteric, the sorry, the exoteric or the outer aspects of religion. While use of the adjective form esoteric dates to late antiquity, the use of esotericism as an ism dates to the 18th and 19th centuries in German, French, and English. In academia, the early study of esotericism was pioneered by the Eranos gatherings taking place at Monteverita in Ascona, Switzerland, attended by figures such as uh, Gershom Scholem, the noted scholar of Kabbalah, and uh, uh, Henri Corbin, the, the scholar of Islamic um, esoteric traditions. And these gatherings in general were characterized by a religionist or perennialist approach to esotericism, which was seen as the hidden core of all religions. Uh, 
One of the participants of the Eranos gatherings, the French historian Antoine Febvre, broke with this approach in the early 1990s and formulated the category of Western esotericism as a form of thought. And Febvre used the qualified Western to mark a break with the universalist or perennialist idea and focusing instead on historical specificity and source-driven research looking in this case at a set of genealogically linked religious currents with the center in what may be considered the quote unquote Abrahamic West. In the last decade and a half, we've seen intense and sometimes quite uh, contested scholarly discussions around the qualifier Western in the term Western esotericism. I'm not going to seek to recapitulate this discussion here today as it has been extensively dealt with elsewhere. And also these arguments on, on both sides, I feel are too um, complex and too important to, uh, to attempt to, to squeeze into a brief presentation such as this one. So for our purposes here tonight, it will be suffice to say the key argument in favor of leaving the qualifier of Western and speaking simply of esotericism and of the study of esotericism uh, is the ideological baggage that is said to accompany the terms West, Western and Western esotericism, uh, which some scholars have argued carry baggage related to, uh, to Eurocentrism, to colonialism and to racism, and uh, how these terms also risk obscuring the agency of non-Western actors in the historical development of esotericism and the globally entangled ways in which many esoteric currents have developed uh, through exchanges between the quote unquote West and other parts of the world. As a counter to this, other scholars have argued that the qualifier Western uh, clarifies a scholarly focus on a historically distinct genealogically related complex of religious currents and clearly marks a distancing from transcultural essentialism or religionism and uh, sidestepping the risk of exporting terms developed to uh, discuss specifically um, Western complexes onto other parts of the world that have may have other terminologies that may be more appropriate. So Keith's new book, as I perceive it, is not a position statement in this debate, uh, pro or con leaving the Western in the study of esotericism or the study of Western esotericism. However, it is part of a growing body of scholarship that has emerged in uh, the last few years uh, perhaps going back as far as to the early 2010s, uh, in which we've seen uh, a small but increasing number of scholars who have worked from meticulous source-driven historiographical research, and uh, by looking specifically at sources has encouraged us to think differently about categories such as East and West, to, to think about these categories in a more nuanced way. So Keith examines in this work the spread, reinterpretation, and relocalization of Sabapati Swami's thought via esoteric currents such as Theosophy and Alistair Crowley's Thelema, um, which I'm really interested in because that's where a lot of my uh, research has been located in, in Crowley's Thelema and its various developments over the 20th century. And Keith highlights how esotericists based in Europe and North America engaged with Sabapati Swami's thoughts in ways that again require us to think differently about notions such as Orientalism and cultural appropriation, which are clearly too, um, 
too too uh, too vague and too clumsy to to really accommodate the ways in which thinkers such as such as Crowley, such as Olcott, Blavatsky, etc., uh, engaged with uh, the uh, the thought of South Asian intellectuals, and which often included genuine reverence and, and admiration, and and actually valorizing uh, South Asian spirituality higher than uh, quote unquote Western streams of esoteric thought. Now, esotericists based in, in Europe and North America, such as Henry Olcott and Alistair Crowley, certainly reinterpreted aspects of Subhapati Swami's thought based on their own agendas, needs and audiences. But this is arguably true of Subhapati Swami as well. And uh, I'm shortly going to return to this aspect of, of hybridity and uh, complexity. So while Keith's study focuses specifically on Subhapati Swami and the development of yoga, I think there are also important parallels here to what we can see as the translocalization or, or the globalization, if you will, of other aspects of Asian spirituality, such as, uh, such as Tantra and various iterations of Buddhist meditation in the 19th and 20th century. The ways in which Tantra and meditation were promoted by intellectuals in South and Southeast Asia can similarly be seen as the results of processes of global entanglement that were certainly shaped and impacted in, in uh, pronounced ways by colonial inequalities, by missionary logics, but nonetheless were processes in which Asian intellectuals played decisive roles and actually shaped globalized spiritual traditions. As has also been shown, for instance, by the work of Henrik Bogdan on the connections between Indian Tantra and the sex magical ideas of the British occultist Kenneth Grant, looking specifically at the influences through David Kerwin and the Holy Order of Krishna, uh, which also has a connection to, to Keith's study, these exchanges were not unidirectional in the sense of uh, Western, quote unquote, European or, or North American occultists appropriating and, and reinterpreting South Asian spirituality, but instead ideas flowed in both directions between uh, the so-called West and uh, and India, and South Asian intellectuals here engaged in dialogue and mutual adaptation with Europe and North America-based occultists. And once again, I think this is really important because it encourages us to think differently about these normative categorizations, distinctions between East and West, but also between uh, tradition and modernity, between traditional or, or pre-modern yoga or tantra, if we make the connection to uh, that complex of traditions, on the one hand, and modernistic or transnationalized uh iterations of, of yoga and tantra, as Keith shows, uh, drawing a normative distinction between these complexes is, is not so easily done. And in his meticulously crafted intertextual source-driven approach, Keith also in this way, I think, provides a methodology for investigating global intertextuality beyond normative conceptions of tradition and innovation, East and West. One thing that I'm particularly intrigued by is uh, the role of gender and the various ideas of the feminine that we see in these contexts in the transmission of yogic and tantric ideas between uh, between India and Europe. So as, as Keith highlights, a notable aspect 
of Sabhapati Swami's thought was his, uh, what we might say, universalist approach to yoga, his uh, aim to teach yoga to all, regardless of, of caste, sex, origin, etc., which of course also parallels the aims of the Theosophical Society. And uh, also the frequent depictions of female yogic disciples and feminine symbolism in the sources that Keith has studied. Uh, European authors on Tantra, such as Kenneth Grant, uh, who was, uh, of course, a disciple also of Alistair Crowley, have drawn on ideas from Indian Tantric sources to argue that women should have a, a greater role, that skilled women practitioners should have a greater role in occultist magic, including sexual magic. Now, scholars of, of, uh, of Tantra have frequently disparaged uh, westernized neo-tantric writings such as Grant's as having little relation to historical Tantra. And once again, I think that Keith's work um, prompts us to think in more nuanced ways about these types of distinctions. Of course, there are certainly crucial differences between pre-modern yogic and tantric sources and their approach to the feminine, but it's nonetheless interesting to ponder, I think, the, the valorization of the feminine in uh, various forms of, of transnationalized yoga and tantra, uh, as of course we know that women have been very strongly represented in 20th century yoga in North America and Europe as well, and how this might be a result of, of globalized or translocalized exchanges. All of this brings us in conclusion to the general contribution of the work. Keith Cantu's Like a Tree Universally Spread is a well-crafted, meticulously sourced and methodologically careful analysis. By highlighting an under-researched theorist of yoga, Sabhapati Swami, uh, Keith brings into focus and problematizes normative distinctions between East and West, pre-modern and modern, uh, tradition or authenticity or innovation and modernity. Keith demonstrates uh, in this way a sound methodology for working through, engaging and troubling these categories by identifying, analyzing and intertextually tracing the distribution of sources essential to the development of yoga in the 19th and early 20th centuries, an approach that can certainly be extrapolated to other complexes of globalized esoteric thought. By highlighting the agency of a South Asian intellectual in these processes, he also prompts us to think in more complex ways about binary distinctions and in this way uh, engages really crucial, timely and core discussions in the study of esotericism today. Thank you. Where that noise is coming from, but uh, Keith, um, we welcome your response to the respondents. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Srilata, Aaron, and Manon for those responses and very detailed engagement with sort of different themes in the work, as well as sort of subtle things, you know, that could also be reformulated or directions for future re research as well. I really, I really appreciate all of that, that, um, all of that feedback. And I have, you know, numerous notes now for, uh, for future you know, study and engagement with this topic. So I think I'll start since Manon's presentation, uh, uh, Manon was was first. I think I'll start with um, with yours. I think it was very very enticing the way that you are looking as a scholar of esotericism and gender at sort of these flows, starting with the genealogy of esotericism, and then also showing how so much uh, of the 
debates over Western and Eastern are tied to post-Orientalist discourses and sort of, you know, this idea of cultural appropriation and so on, which really, I think, gets to certain of the implications of the work when looked, you know, when looking at that, that source material. And I think it is very important to see Sabapati Swami's agency as an author with his own motivations in this discourse and that it's not something that's unidirectional. I, I completely agree. And one anecdote is him meeting with Helena Blavatsky and Henry Olcott and then praising Helena Blavatsky as, uh, you know, basically someone who has this uh, occult knowledge, you know, someone who has this yogic knowledge and sort of validating her approach. But what's interesting is that sometimes we have to read between the lines in terms of where these directions go in the sense that he doesn't do the same for Henry Olcott. Now, that's not to say that, you know, Henry Olcott didn't have the same occult power as, say, Madame Blavatsky. But it is very interesting that when looking at these sources, we have sort of things that we can look at and read between the lines. You know, there were ways in which even though certain yogis or swamis or authors during the colonial period could not say certain things openly or could not, you know, possibly, you know, write and publish certain books and obtain a large audience. There were subtle ways of sort of injecting opinions and responses and swaying cultural opinion. And so it's it's very important. And I, I love how um, your response is sensitive to that. And in terms of gender, I think the gender flows are also extremely interesting. And, and that's one of the reasons I'm, uh, you know, a huge fan of your own work on uh, the goddess uh, Babylon and the formula and in Thelema. And I think that as used by Kenneth Grant, it's interesting that Kenneth Grant in his library even has a copy of Sri Sapapathi Swami. But at the same time, it's interesting that he's choosing to incorporate and use extant scholarship like uh, in looking at some of his 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 works you'll find reference to you know sanskrit and indological so uh, sources from the 1960s and 1970s and what this what this kind of makes me think about is sort of a, a tension between going back to sources 100 years ago or 150 years ago versus say esoteric practitioners or occultists sort of looking and trying to find you know, more up-to-date contemporary scholarship. And then that can also lead to the sort of, you know, source amnesia that we've talked about. And it's interesting as well, and the implications that Sabapathy, as you mentioned, did accept and uh, celebrate uh, female uh, practitioners who also uh, were able to uh, compose poetry and obtain equal status as students and as yogis and also participate in these same kinds of flows, which I think is, has a lot of implications for the esoteric currents you study, this idea that there can be masculine and feminine polarities in a single gendered body, regardless of biologically male or female, is very important. And I think that the notion of the shivalingam and sort of the interplay with the, the yoni uh, in a cosmic sense uh, is, is definitely food for you know, further research through, through a gender uh, perspective and, and gender studies lens. Um, Aaron, I, yeah, I, as you know that you, we've uh, talked about this uh, topic um, for a long time now, and thank you for uh, recognizing that I might have found the Chuda money or the, the crest jewel there somewhere in the rough. And I think that um, you're absolutely right to cite that there are, you know, certain arguments that maybe I should have pulled back on the sort of the subjunctive, you know, and been more sort of direct in, in, in claiming. 
at the same time, so much of this material seems so uh, nuanced in terms of when we're talking about something as abstract and subtle as influence, right? Mm -hmm. And Carl Ernst writes about this and talking about um, Sufi influence on yoga, for example, or Islamic yoga, like how do we talk about influence, you know, going one way or the other. And so sort of what I found was really engaging with some of the source material, like what um, Manon also brought up, the, the source material and then making claims based on what I could see in the either published sources or diary entries or, or so on that are in, in the archives. And I think it's very interesting as well, this idea that it's going both ways. And I think you're, you're the only panelist who has sort of brought that up that, okay, well, what is the, what is the theosophical and esoteric uh, implications on an Indic yogi like Sabapati Swami? And I think that we can see that in numerous ways, such as his sort of trying to use print culture to create these network of meditation mm -hmm. halls encouraging people to join the Theosophical Society while never joining himself, but still sort of creating his own currents that are sort of mirroring what uh, Theosophy was doing with dif different lodges and, and so on, and possibly Freemasonry and, you know, un Unitarian thoughts also there in the background. Um, but this gets also into uh, Srilata's point, which I'll come to in a moment. It's interesting that he's also bridging this engagement of universalism that he's getting from theosophy with the Tamil Virashaiva idea of universalism that uh, Manon also brings up, like, regardless of caste, gender, you know, uh, people can sort of practice yoga as sort of this uh, universal platform for religion. And then the last thing I wanted to bring out, which I thought was really interesting, is the notion of Sanskrit and the Tamil inflected Mani Pravala or the jewels and coral. I think that's really fascinating and important to think you know, more clearly about, especially since when you have the notion of a, a Sin Tamar or the sort of the, the purified, you know, pure Tamil as wanting to take away a lot of the Sanskrit, as we saw you know, in, in a movement in the early 20th century, Figures like Sabapati sort of come across then as old-fashioned, archaic, and I think that leads to one of the reasons why he's been uh, gradually sort of forgotten over time. And lastly, do I do I make too much of Sabapati? I admit it. I, you know, I I live and breathe Sabapati Swami all day long, and I will wear that that flag. Um, but I mean, of course, his his you know talking about influence in general terms, it has limits. You know, he's not the only yogi that. Um, Alistair Crowley was engaging, for example. Uh, he's not the only yogi who was important in the Theosophical Society. He's not the only Tamil Shaiva important uh, reformer, like we saw in Srilata's mention of uh, Chidambara Ramalinga Swamigal. At the same time, he's covering all of these bases to such an extent that I think that it makes his influence, you know, as spoken broadly, really, really compelling in all of these various directions and in, an important figure to trace, you know, even if he's not the end all, you know, the, 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 the such a huge figure as he might, um, you know, say a figure like Swami Vivekananda, for example, you know, elevated to celebrity status or something. At the same time, you know, he's everywhere, but nowhere. And that phenomenon really, uh, phenomenon really, uh, really speaks to me. And getting to um, Srilata's uh, response, thank you so much uh, for that uh, really deep engagement and recognizing the importance of the Tamil Shaiva material and your own work on Ramalinga Swamigal certainly 
mirrors and reflects uh, you know uh, a similar sort of engagement and committing commitment to sort of understanding these genealogies and different sort of lines and paramparas and the 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 impact on Tamil religion uh, both particular and global and I think it's also interesting that uh, there's a claim in his hagiography that Sabapati had met Ramalinga Swamigal possibly in Vadalur and I'm wondering, you know, no one has been able to confirm that or, or deny that they met. But I mean, if they did, then there's clearly, you know, a more sort of intertwining and, and exchange between the two. And I was really interested in your, your notion of a kind of hybrid modernity that they sort of, you know, these figures, they have sort of one foot in the 19th century, you know, colonial discourses. And then they also have really, you know, one foot, so to speak, in this deep, um, you know, uh, tradition, textual transmission, knowledge, religious knowledge from uh, Hindu Shaiva currents that sort of inform what they're doing. And this notion of claiming lineage, I think is also very, very important. We have, as you brought up, Sabapati has claims one lineage, which is very, you know, on the scale of historical verifiability, much more plausible that of uh, his guru Chirambara, uh, Chirambara, sorry, Vedashreni Chirambara Swamigal. And Vedashreni Chirambara Swamigal, you know, is associated with his family where Sabapati was brought up in Velacheri. And uh, he can be traced back, you know, his, his tumulus or, or shrine still survives. By contrast, you know, the, as you brought up, the Shivagyana Bodhirishi, this sort of mythological figure, I'm wondering if the claiming of lineage really is also an attempt to really go back to Augusta and the Rishi Augusta and sort of the, the, you know, I use this phrase, you know, lightly, I'm not super committed to it, but the idea of sort of a, a tantric uh, mythology or, you know, a, borrowing from David Gordon White, this alchemical mythology that goes back to the Siddhas and you know, about Augusta as associated with the Potigai Malai, the Agatya Malai. And it seems like that as, uh, as, as being reflected in this kind of southern mountain of Kailasa, or, you know, a reflection of the south and the north is very, very important for Sabapati's claim, perhaps to have a kind of knowledge or a system of yoga that can help him stand out in what must have been a very sort of competitive field of, you know, people publishing knowledge and, you know, uh, releasing and disseminating different works. And in that, we also see that in his translation, which you pointed out, the sort of lost in translation. I think his attempt was also to expand, you know, as widely as he could his audience by embarking on translation into uh, Telugu, Bengali, Hindi, you know, all these sorts of uh, translations. And the last thing that I want to point out is that I think it's very important as well and uh, and notable that Sabapati was also concerned with this notion of uh, jnana, uh, jnana or knowledge, you know, gnosis that, that you point out was also very much uh, linked to some of the Tamil Shaiva discourses and Chirambara Ramalinga Swamigal and the notion that that knowledge can lead to a kind of release or or moksha. Uh, that That seems to be something that also allows this yoga to have a sort of religious and soteriological importance that's grounded in 
you know, these two steps, not just the colonial modernity engaging with Vedantic discourses, but also, I mean, from my own perspective, when I first read Sabapati Swami, I thought he might just be, you know, a Vedantic author who is, you know, not really engaging in some of the practical methods, you know, not really deeply engaged with these Shaiva currents. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things that your response brings out is looking at these words sort of with fresh eyes and how these terms like jnana and moksha are used in the Tamil Shaiva contexts might be much, you know, more evocative of a wider uh, tradition of texts and spirituality than just seeing it, oh, you know, he's just, you know, uh, pulling, you know, on a surface level from a Sanskrit uh, text or something. And so I think that speaks to the discourse of authenticity that we've also been talking about in this in this uh, panel. So with that, I'll leave it open for a discussion between us and then possible questions as well. Yeah. I just want to take on Aaron's thing about does Keith make too much of Sabapati Swami? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Aaron, I, I was struck by that comment because, and of course, the, the self-evident, yes, of course he does, whatever. Uh, and anybody who writes a whole book on a figure as Keith does or as I have done, uh, making too much of them. But uh, I think it, points to the deeper issue um, of, uh, you know, uh, the creation of canons, right? And in this case, I mean, in the in one of the things, of course, in terms of uh, a canon of uh, figures of Hindu modernity, uh, the canon has been uh, created with figures like Ram Mohan Roy, you know, the father of modern Hinduism, Vivekananda, uh, you know, Dayanand Saraswati, and, you know, Gandhi, you know, this goes on, right? But um, what that has, what that has done, of course, is to prioritize two things. One is uh, to prioritize the North versus the South. Mm -hmm. The South is always the periphery. Uh, but it's also prioritized, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, translation mm. and the ability, not just uh, the fact for the works to be translated, but the figures themselves, basically uh, reflecting the, the post-colonial predicament of in, in the subcontinent, who has control of English mm. and who doesn't, Right. So in some way, uh, the fate of Sabapati long-term or the fate of Chidambaram Ramli or, or other very interesting figures has been the fate of those who's not had that access, right? Mm -hmm. So in some way, to do the job of retrieval, I think, and to make too much of a great deal of these figures is uh, to, I think, to, to try to redress that imbalance in the historiography of uh, modern uh, Hinduism as well. Uh, you know, maybe. I mean, I'm just speaking, thinking about because I'm sort of on the same bandwagon as Keith, but I don't know, if, Aaron, uh, what you... I, I would thoroughly agree with you. <laughs> I was being very much tongue-in-cheek uh, about that. 
one of the things that's the most exciting to me about Keith's work is it does give you a little bit of Duridian archive fever. You really look at it and you go, whoa, if you just go from this one footnote into, and then it expands into the, the Tamil context, the Bengali context, the English context, the Hindi context, you, you wonder, or at least I wonder, who else were there? Like you said, why is this canon closed? And I, I think that Roy is interesting and Swami Vivekananda are, are they're interesting, but I, I'm amazed by Sabapati Swami, whose uh, his writings, as Keith has recovered them, have not been watered down. Vivekananda sort of loses his, you know, wonderful, weirdly yogic perspectives as he's translocalized. So it's almost like because Sabapati Swami wasn't known as well or picked up as widely, he's able to maintain the glorious Veera Shaiva perspectives, uh, the Tantra running through the Tamil Shaiva, everything. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by him. And I'm also, I, I get the archive fever. I get, I get, I get scared. I quake. I think, well, what if Keith had never come along? Maybe, what? Well, then where would this guy be? And, and who are the other people? The, who are the other women, in fact, who have written likely so much that have been lost to time and without scholars that can not only read the local languages, but can bounce between them, especially people who don't study any of the Southern languages. I mean, it's, it seems incomprehensible to think about Indian literature only through Sanskrit. But when I first learned Hinduism, it was all Sanskrit. You know, there was no Kannada, Malayali, Tamil, the stuff that are not languages I work with, but I just see such incredible richness coming out. And Keith's showing that it's not just going into the past, of the far past of those languages and finding complexities, the complexities there in the modern world. And the cool thing, as I was kind of saying in there about this material, is that it's not just that Keith can read these different languages that allows him to uncover it. It's that the people who are writing could read those languages as well. Hmm. I think these are really good points. And I also liked uh, the what you said, Aaron, about if you look at something closely enough, you're going to see everything eventually. And uh, that's, that's one of my favorite sort of uh, approaches to historical research is taking something that's ostensibly quite niche and then gazing at it long enough to, to turn it into this amazing prism that shows all of these these wider dynamics. Uh, so I think that's really, really pertinent to what Keith has done here. And also, uh, Silatha, what you said about the idea of the canon, I think, is, is really applicable also if we look at the context of, of esotericism, because until very, very recently, that canon has been incredibly narrowly defined. We've had, uh, I mean, Hermes, Trismegistus, Paracelsus, Jakob Burma, Swedenborg, um, Pico della Mirandola, etc., Eliphas Levy, and uh, and Blavatsky, and, and, and even the inclusion of, of someone like Crowley in, in that canon is is actually quite recent because he was he was denigrated for a really long time by the more sort of highbrow uh, older generation scholars of esotericism, uh, and now having um, with someone like you, uh, Keith, or, or the both of you as well, Aaron and, and Srilatha, who have uh, the specialized language skills to look at uh, how ideas have, have developed through these global exchanges 
much more um, broadly, but also in a much more specialized way is, is really, really exciting. And uh, what you're saying there as well, Aaron, in terms of, of the archive fever and what else is out there? And, and what if we take another footnote somewhere and just like go down that rabbit hole and, and see where it takes us? I mean, probably there's so much that we don't even know yet about how these intertextual connections are built. And that's uh, that's so exciting as well. And, and, uh, and definitely probably more women authors as well that we don't know about. And uh, yeah, so I think all of that is, is really important and, and, uh, and so exciting for, for all of these different fields as well. And, and as a textualist, somebody who works with Sanskrit manuscripts, one of the most thrilling and ridiculous things for me and joyous things in Keith's book is the story of him finding texts, going around and getting, I, could I get into that archive? Couldn't I? Could I get a photocopy? Wouldn't I? I think it might be there, but I think it might not. And I've spent a lot of my time doing just that, but in the pre-modern world. So people have joked and called me Indiana Aaron as Indiana Jones over there looking for texts and hopefully not doing what Indiana Jones does. But the whole explorer of text that is not white guy finding this incredible thing about himself through this, but finding it gets bigger and deeper and wider. And he's he's not reducing anything. He's just opening the box up further and further. And there are just more and more voices that are being pulled in. And I think that's a model for how we should do scholarship especially in the Indian modern era when everything was so hybrid, the word we keep bringing up. You know, but more than even him hunting ground for texts and archives, I, I, I really sort of kept grinning when I thought of him, you know, scrambling over Podigay Hills, trying to find a cave, or actually seriously thinking of digging up a, a tumulus. I mean, for God's sake, Keith, <laughs> I, I almost dropped my digital book when you were talking about digging up that cumulus. Yeah, I thought yeah, insatiable curiosity is really going to get you into trouble one of these days. <laughs> it almost did. There was a serious discussion over the implications of what would happen if we if we dug that exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. The, obviously your attitude is I'll stop at nothing to get to my source sources. That that is that is the attitude, and I, I you know I have to say I think that it's really nice when these sorts of um, mentions and you know like you all were mentioning a footnote, right? I think that this gets into sort of a distinction between one you know there's there's an emic practitioner or sort of you know belief or doctrine you know that 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 sort of lens by which we might access these texts or these ideas. But then there's also sort of just, you know, on the general academic level, the ways in which um, occultists or esoteric practitioners have preserved almost entire fields of knowledge almost by accident, right? Just by mentioning some of these footnotes and people and, you know, webs of information who have been forgotten over time. And so for me, like that, you know, as a historian, that was really, you know, uh, or not a historian, but a, you know, historian of religions. Uh, really, really interested in sort of how that could be traced back and, you know, using a variety of methods to try to figure, 
you know, out and connect the dots really with communities who are still living in that world. It's not that those worlds have disappeared. It's just that they've been sort of, you know, made static in a text, you know, in a printed text and, and those worlds are still, are still living on. And so, you know, I was very surprised to find out that there was even a living Sabapati Lingeshwarar, um, you know, temple uh, in Konor and Vilivakam, where Sabapati had, you know, created his his meditation hall. And so just connecting those dots, you know, was really fascinating and was wonderful to, um, uh, you know, I would say it was it was very um, humbling in a way, but also very like, um, I would say affirming of, you know, my place, you know, not trying to be, you know, be be put on a pedestal or anything, but but like seeing that there were these traditions and cultures and religious practices that were living on, you know, alongside and seeing that the welcome by which Sabapati's writings were received in these communities was really was really heartwarming to me. And that, you know, that people were really viewing and they still do, they view Sabapati Swami as their guru. You know what I mean? And they view Sabapati Swami as this, you know, this figure. And so I think that just speaks to the importance of seeing this, um, the local and and the translocal or global as sort of these, you know, parallel tracks, you know. But, yeah. There's a question from uh, Arni Narendran. Can you can see it? Yes, yes. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out. So Arni Narendran is asking about Franz Hartmann. And yes, yeah, so uh, this is in uh, the the maybe the second chapter as well as the seventh chapter of the book. So Franz Hartmann did uh, did go to Adyar in Chennai and he spent time at the Theosophical Society headquarters. And there, I'm not exactly sure when, but he was exposed to Sri Sabapati Swami's works. I don't know if they met personally, but he did end up translating a good amount of Sabapati Swami's initial lectures that were published in English with with Sanskrit uh, archaic transliterations into German. And so Franz Hartmann also added lots of footnotes comparing Sabapati's uh, philosophy with Christian mystics, uh, Meister Eckhart, and then also Helena Blavatsky, viewing um, also him through the lens of uh, Shankaracharya and so on. So yeah, definitely, definitely Franz Hartmann was aware of Sabapati and, and, and interested. To Northra. Um, there was, there was something I found fascinating in, in re, uh, you know, looking at uh, the chapters, which is in terms of um, the fact, am I, am I uh, wrong in thinking that Sabapati in his writings and the whole uh, yoga stuff is not uh, really dwelling at all on the transformation of the physical body. Hmm. That's because a great of course this is so huge in Kumara Devar that the practice of Shivaraja yoga actually transforms the physical body. Uh, but it seems to oddly be completely missing in in this uh, the which of course is one would then be a huge major difference between Sabapati's version and what he took it from. So that would that's am I wrong in thinking that? 
I don't think you're wrong, but I would say I would say it's de-emphasized and not entirely absent. Since if you look, and this is the importance of the visual culture, which I'm now only now getting into um, analyzing and commenting uh, on his diagrams. That will be actually part of my postdoc uh, project at the the Center for the Study of World Religions, starting in June, is analyzing his diagrams more specifically. And these diagrams sometimes contain anatomical parts of the body like brain skeleton bones that are also part of the yogic body so that's not sort of entirely uh, made subtle and abstract if that makes sense and so there is a transformation of some of these bodily constituents into uh, basically a divinized um, you know cosmic shiva lingam if that makes sense like or like a linga svarupa essential form of the linga and so that becomes very important in his works and also this notion that different parts of the body like uh, can be touched and then meditated on and given in dedication to Shiva seems to be a transformation of the ears and then the nose and the mouth and the you know and then even um, you know the you know the the lower region you know the lower regions the lingam or the yoni you know even the anus is like you know even referred to like the, the whole body is is sacred in, in a way or is given this sort of sacrality through these practices but i'm not sure if that's what you're referring to in the the body centric but there is a transformation while at the same time it's seen as illusory maybe that's what you're getting at the so. yeah i think i think it's um i'm getting at the fact that uh, the bodily transformation Kumara Devar and then of course in Ramalinga Swamigal is, is very real. The body actually becomes, the physical body actually becomes either adamantine or, or, or you know, uh, changes. The physical body actually changes through the yoga uh, mm. in Kumara Deva. And that doesn't, at least in the, in the materials you've quoted, but um, yeah, it's one. It does. It does come up just briefly in the idea that yogis transform themselves into the shivalinga, and so those stones are transformations of the body. So that comes up as 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 yogis, but um, but not much else. Yeah. So Keith, I have in my notes that I didn't get to that I wanted to say to you. Uh, the visual media culture could use a book in of itself. So you made me very happy when you just told me that you're going to do that. So my question is for you and Manon in particular together. And that's when I was looking at all this visual media culture and the diagrams, I kept thinking this looks similar, but not the same to a lot of stuff I've seen. So I was wondering if the two of you could reflect on the visual media culture in Subhapati Swami and its continuities or differences from other Tamilian and Indic sources at the time and to and from other sort of wider esoteric writing in the 19th, 20th century, specifically writing that has pictures. Manon, do you want to take that first? Or? Um, I might need to think about that for a second. Do you want to start, Keith, while I, sure. uh, I gather my thought? That's a really good question. Mm. In the in the index side of the material, I can say that the paintings uh, predate. You know, there there is this tradition of paintings of the yogic body, and you know, sort of having all of these different uh, stations and you know uh, chakras or wheels or knots in the body, different locations and nadis. You know, you, you're familiar. Maybe there's a book. Uh, Deborah Diamond uh, did this exhibit, Yoga and Transformation, where she exhibited all of these at the Smithsonian uh, Institute, and uh, there's a 
there's a volume that shows this very, very plainly. So the paintings were there, but Sabapati strikes me as the first person to have done this in print uh, culture, to have done diagrams so widely and possibly the first uh, printed diagrams of, you know, the yogic body or, you know, the subtle body, if you will. And he also appears to have been a pioneer. I haven't found any earlier sources in which the diagrams are numbered. And so mm. the, the diagrams are numbered and the numbered uh, parts go back to the book. And so at first, this wasn't as huge of a part of the, the, his initial mm. lectures. But then as you go on, the, the, the pictures almost become the whole book. And the rest of the book is almost describing the pictures rather than the other way around. That's so. fascinating. But my, one, my little nuance here, who are the artists? The artists, uh, only a few of them sign their names. Uh, so there, there are a few Telugu artists um, who I mentioned in the book. I, I forget exactly their names. Uh, but normally there are people who were devotees in the shrine. And even today, that's the importance of kind of the fieldwork and ethnography side is going to this temple that survives with Sri Sabapati Swami. There are temple artists who are commissioned, you know, with uh, making portraits of different uh, of these swamis, you know, or Siddha figures. And that's a whole culture in and of itself where they get their inspiration from, you know, how they're patronized by the devotees and everything. But just depictions or depictions of these figures with subtle bodies? I've seen very more rarely now, but uh, mostly figures. But then there are also in some of these, um, you know, more modern Siddha milieus or Siddha like medicine milieus, there are diagrams that deal with the body in kind of more subtle ways. Yeah, I've seen. I know I've seen that a little bit in Maharashtra. But so that's that's fascinating. Mm. Mm. I think it's I think it's really interesting. Also, the question about who the actual artists were is is really interesting to think about as well. Uh, in comparison, I'm actually shamefully bad at, at esoteric visual culture. I feel I'm very sort of text focused, so I'm always like, oh yeah, images. Also, yes, um, many things going on in the images. Uh, and then I get back to the text. But uh, one thing I notice about the diagrams, if we look at the ones uh, particularly pertaining to the subtle body is that they're incredibly elaborate and mm. complex. And my just very sort of spontaneous reaction is that they're a lot more intricate than a lot of, if if we compare to theosophy and, and uh, ways of, of uh, um, visually illustrating conceptions of the subtle body, for instance, in, is that if we look at these diagrams, there's a whole lot more going on than this kind of quite um, simplified system of the chakras that uh, gets mostly sort of circulated through Blavatsky and uh, in that tradition in, in sort of westernized uh, context. So I think that's really interesting. And of course there is, um, I mean, this is 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 really outside of my specialty, but I know there is a whole lot more going on in in that uh, context as well. In terms of um, in terms of the subtle body, there is uh, there is a recent uh, doctoral dissertation about uh, contemporary yoga, particularly in Sweden, and, and looking about at yoga teachers' concepts of the uh, the subtle body by Marlene Fitzgerald at Stockholm University and who looks at kind of theosophy and, and Blavatsky's work she um, in, in her scholarship as, as kind of a key channel for various South Asian conceptions of the subtle body into this 
sort of remarkably standardized um, model of, of the, the, the colors of the rainbow correlated to the chakras um, that we see in, in sort of post-Blavatsky and theosophically inspired esoteric uh, maps. So I think that's really interesting. Hmm. Aren't a lot of these lithographs, uh, Keith? They are. So like uh, pen and ink drawings. Uh, there are pen and ink drawings that are then made into, I think, woodblock. Yeah, because I'm also thinking of this uh, uh, fascinating development. It can't be earlier than the 19th century. Could be earlier. Of, of course, uh, the lithographs for the for the um, prayer books, mm. which emerge in the Shaiva and Vaishnava context, um, and also for things like the Periyapuranam, mm. you have uh, lithographs illustrating the stories and so on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, the lithographs are meant to do what? Of course, give you a visual sense, but also reinforce through another medium doctrine, maybe, things like that. Anyway, the project will be very interesting if you think of it in connection with uh, lithographic work in so, this period. I will do. And I think a lot of it, it, it has to do with sort of, as you say, reinforce the doctrine. It's like pedagogical styles in a way. And uh, Sabapati was not just sort of trying to teach an audience of students, it's very clear that he was trying to teach other gurus, like other teachers, and to sort mm -hmm. of train other teachers in that, you know, uh, both male and female. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting that these diagrams were used. You could even purchase the diagrams separately to use as teaching aids. And so that's, um, you know, that's evident from his work. And also some diagrams even were, you know, as these lithographs could be substitute uh, substituted for being physically initiated by Sapapati Swami. So you mm. can meditate on the image and he could um, give you a diksha, which then he translates as mesmerism, which is a whole other thing, uh, you know, getting into esotericism. Uh, but um, you could you could use these diagrams as, as a, an aid to sort of get in touch with Sapapati Swami. I don't just, see any questions. Um, any other questions? There's also one one other interesting thing uh, about this sort of uh, dichotomy, I think, of text and image. Uh, just an anecdote in looking at the archives of the Theosophical Society in Adyar, trying to trace back um, Helena Blavatsky and Henry Olcott's meeting with the Swami hmm. in or it was interesting that Henry Olcott kept a regular diary every day, pretty much. And so every day it had a date, it had the uh, year, and then it had kind of what happened. And so it was very linear, like very text-based, you know, and I could see how, you know, some maybe some of our brains are sort of more, you know, oriented in that direction, you know, sort of every day. But then Helena Blavatsky didn't keep that kind of diary at all or journal. Hmm. But what did she keep? She kept a scrapbook and hmm. a scrapbook was full of images and the images though were in chronological order. So you could actually kind of find these things that she had saved and cut and then pasted and then trace back what was going on through images rather than text. And so I th that, that was really interesting to me, but. 
uh, I have one other maybe final question. Um, was he ever photographed? That I have, I do not believe so. I do not believe so, which is fairly uh, rare. Uh, it's there is a reference to a picture, so like, but it's just using Padam in Tamil uh, a, that a picture that he had mailed to his student Om Prakasha Swamigal, whose um, ashram survives in Uti in the in the um, yes, Kandal. In, the in reason Uti. I'm asking is, of course, about the whole because he lived very long, for one thing. But the other thing, of course, is the whole, um, uh, with Chidambaram Ramdhi Swamigal, the whole idea that uh, the photograph, photography extracts something hmm. uh, from the person and, and therefore is, is dangerous. And so, of course, the, a great yogi actually can't be photographed. I mean, those kind of ideas. I was just wondering, uh, it's it, very interesting that there exists no photo of him. Another reason why something is obviously lost, right? There's mm. all, there's all there are all this there are all these drawings and and the the visual and yet something very central to the visual is completely absent, mm. which is a photograph of him, uh, if you know, from all this period. Mm. That's very very interesting. That that is very interesting. That makes me also think of a similar figure during that time period. So in in um, in what is today West Bengal and Bangladesh, Lalon uh, Shah Lalon Fokir, he also there's no photograph of him in his lifetime, and he also didn't allow even sort of like drawings even of him. And like the one drawing that does exist of him was made by one of the Tagore uh, Tagore brothers, uh, so uh, associated with Rabindranath Tagore, I think Tagore's brother. And um, and even that wasn't apparently done with Lalon's consent. And so I think you're right to speak of this maybe as more of a tradition of sort of not wanting to be depicted, uh, perhaps, or even not wanting to be photographed, unless there's a reason for this kind of you know initiatory connection. But any more questions before we kind of wrap up? I know we're right at kind of five thirty, so. Maybe I will wrap up then. So thank you all for enjoy uh, for joining this this book uh, this book launch for Sri Sabapati Swami, like a tree universally spread. Sri Sabapati Swami and Shivaraji Yoga. I really have appreciated talking with each of you, Srilata, Aaron, and Manon, and I look forward to keeping the conversation going and seeing where these future strands of research go in the future. And thank you all to the audience for joining either now or remotely or online watching in the future. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. This was really nice. Thank you. Yeah. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.